Hey guys, this is Robert Malazzo from Murmur. If you like the show, and I love bringing it to you, it's tons of fun for me. Our audience is awesome. We get great feedback. So here's an idea. If you have time, go to the iTunes store, leave us a review. I'm told by really smart people that it helps cut through the signal and noise world we live in for the show. I love bringing this to you every week. So if you have a moment to leave us a review, that would be great. Murmur Radio on the iTunes store. Thank you so much. And now quiet on the set. Quiet on the set. Studio WHUPLP Hillsboro. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo. Over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, the Forget Me Not artist James Jean is with us. Welcome. Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you. I'm the founder of the Modern School of Film. Always happy to be with you every Friday live on whupfm.org and evergreen, forever accessible iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Download us. Subscribe. First you subscribe, then you download. But you must download. I tell you this every week. (laughs) <laughs> we have ways of making you download murmurradio.com go to the website send us an email murmurradio at gmail.com we're going to be doing some live murmurs soon I hope to have some uh, info for you on the website this week and announce it formally on air next week if you go to the website you'll see a button that says don't click here well then you gotta click there don't you click there and what it is is you could send us a topic you want me to explore on the air and i will partner that topic with a guest i and i will give you full credit full marks a plus e for effort a plus for the gpa i'll find you a guest and credit you on the air murmurradio.com welcome Happy to be back with you, uh, back every week here, live or iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Murmur. Today I want to talk about a topic that is so omnipresent. The topic is almost presence and omnipresence, but let's call it exposure. Today on the show is James Jean, and half of you are saying, I don't know who James Jean is, and the other half are saying, oh, cool, James Jean. Well, that's really the reason why I wanted to have James on. James doesn't do a lot of talking about his art and uh, he was really gracious and flattering and humbling to accept my invitation. He'll be with us today. He is an artist. He is a graphic artist. He is an artist. I mean, you know, when I say graphic artist, he's not a performer. So graphic means everything else. He paints, he, he draws, he illustrates, he does album covers. I mean, there's so many platforms for his work and the, the mechanism of his work is physical, hand to device creating work what's really cool about james is he to me exemplifies that art is really everywhere 
He's done graphic art for Target and uh, the New York Times and ESPN the magazine, but also done really cool album covers for Umbrella Academy and uh, well, sorry, uh, comic covers. I was getting I was getting my My Chemical Romance ahead of myself. He's worked with Gerard Way in My Chemical Romance, uh, Umbrella Academy, which is one of Gerard's comic inventions, and he's also done um, My Chemical Romance covers. We'll talk to him about that. We also talked to him. He's, he did a really amazing cover for Lincoln Park. When I talked to him about Chester Bennington and Lincoln Park, uh, he's he's done comic book covers. He's won six or seven Eisner Awards, which is sort of like the Nobel Peace Prize of comic art. His reluctance to come on feeds into this real reality that we have now that artists are both compelled and curious to come out into the public with their work and their identity, although they don't want to come out with it, if, if that makes sense. And let's untie this knot a bit before we bring in James. I, I think of it in terms of film for a moment. Uh, a year, it was a 20, 2016, Terrence Malick, who's always been the sort of Howard Hughes of filmmakers, did a public appearance in... Uh, Princeton, New Jersey. You know, he wasn't talking about his film. He was talking about the R- Roberto Rossellini film, Journey to Italy. But it, it, I remember it struck me so distinctly as everyone in the film community, oh my God, we're gonna, there's going to be a Terrence Malick sighting. And Malick has also since been at South by Southwest. Now, yes, he's from Austin. He lives in Austin. I, I think he actually is from Oklahoma. He lives in Austin. So that's, that's a quick stop for him, how comfortable he was. I wasn't at any of these uh, events with Terry, but the fact that he came out to talk, even though he wasn't talking about himself, it's sort of a promotional magnetism, and he's been making more movies now. You know, when I started first thinking and watching movies, that would have been uh, forboten for a Terrence Malick sighting. You know, Kubrick did so few Q&As, but now these type of filmmakers are doing more than ever the filmmakers that never thought they had to go out and talk about their films have to. Now, that's a have-to thing. The want-to is what I want to look at today more because James is someone who seems to want to. James, Gene, there are metrics on this stuff now. I was going to say there's no metric, but there is. Has 600,000 Instagram followers. So for those of you who've never heard of James, you're thinking, oh, my God. Well, James, you should subscribe to him, and this is not... A promotional thought. This is the fact that they're amazing. I mean, his Instagram displays his work, his artwork, and now his movie poster work. He did the really incredible movie poster of Jennifer Lawrence for Darren Aronofsky's film Mother, and we'll talk to James about that. The point is, there are a lot of artists on Instagram who I wonder their reluctance and their desire level to contribute because, again, there's the work, there's the work of art, and the artist. And, and now for fans or lovers of work, we want more from the artist. But sometimes the artists don't want to cross that threshold. But Instagram and social media has allowed threshold crossing without the, the persona being involved. It's sort of a, 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 for, a, a digital persona non grata. <laughs> you know, someone like uh, anonymous artists who you wouldn't know if you ran into on the street. Someone like Banksy has an Instagram account. Um, Invader. I follow Invader. The street artist, French street artist, has an Instagram account. Graffiti artists have Instagram accounts, although they're mostly anonymous because it runs afoul of the law. Tattoo artists. Now, tattoo artists, it's obviously someone who wants to be known because there's a, there's a commerce. And I think commerce is also a big part of the desirability, if I may sound cynical, but reasonable for a moment. Um Larry Clark, it's funny, we've had Larry on the show, and we had Larry just when he was about to start Instagram. Knock me over with a feather. I never would have thought Larry Clark would be on Instagram. So there's a commercial piece, but there's also a curiosity, emotional piece. There's a vanity piece. There's an ego piece. There's a history piece. There's a time piece. So having James Jean on, who, if you look at his work online, it's exquisite. It's extraordinary. If you look at his work in the public space, it's exquisite. It's extraordinary. But he also has 600,000 Instagram followers, 
which is really amazing. So it's this social antisocial thing that seems to be a trait of uh, a lot of the guests we have on Merber, uh, and maybe your your humble narrator as well. It's this push pull. Uh, I, I you know, and I and I tend to hate when people describe them, describe themselves as I'm a I'm sort of an extroverted introvert or I'm an introverted extrovert. I mean, you know, you don't have to settle on anything, but art. The, the curious contract of art is there is a work of art and the implicit come on of art is that someone created it unless you're a 3D printer but someone created that 3D printer and programmed that 3D printer but someone created that art so we want more from that art we want more of that artist from that artist but sometimes the artist doesn't want to fulfill that part of the contract now is it a contract is it an expectation it's rare that an artist can shimmy out of promotional and publicity chats on our show on murmur i like to run into artists when they have nothing to promote which uh is the case today certainly james has nothing to promote but he's he's always out there but what i like about james gene as an artist and as a person and the curious part of this conversation about exposure is, can you expose yourself and disappear? James has disappeared a few times, and we'll talk to him about that. Is that realistic? Is that a realistic uh, tug of war? Can you disappear and be an artist? Is, is implicit in the definition of being an artist an appearance uh, etymology, or can you disappear? Maybe not completely, but can you sort of, and, and can you sort of disappear? I mean, is it like being pregnant? Can you sort of disappear or is disappearing a total state? We'll talk about that with James Jean today on Murmur. Welcome to the show. <laughs> First this. So today we're talking about exposure as we talk about every week. The signal-to-noise ratio is so out of whack. And I surmise that as an artist, you really have to come out from under the ground 
to be seen and heard. The good part of that, the good part of that yin-yang is the great artists are now emerging. Uh, so I want you to invite a great artist on to talk about this concept of exposure, how much is too much, how much is not enough. Today's artist to me, today's guest on Murmur to me, proves that great art is both extraordinary and ordinary. He has authored both uh, from incredible exhibition collections, bound collections, murals, the sexiest and most cutting edge of comic book and album covers, work in digital and painterly mediums, but also, I don't want to call Prada ordinary, but when you think of art as accessory and fashion, um, and when you think of ESPN magazine, you don't normally think of art unless this man gets his hands on it. Please welcome to Murmur, an artist of the highest order, Mr. James Jean. James, welcome to Murmur, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Do you feel your overexposed, underexposed? <laughs> Do you have the right amount of exposure? When you hear the word exposure for an artist, where does your mind go? Well, I think about, uh, say, someone like Henry Darger or Darger. I guess we're not even sure how to right. pronounce his <laughs> name. But, you know, he was toiling away, uh, creating these incredible works of art in, in uh, complete anonymity, only later to be discovered and, and, and now uh, lauded by the, the fine art world and having these museum shows. And there's a certain part of that that seems so romantic and, and uh, alluring to, to someone like me who usually likes, likes to stay behind the curtain. So even doing this podcast, it's something that goes against my nature. I don't know why I agreed to it. Maybe because of <laughs> You know, how, how good of a uh, interviewer you are and, and also the, the amazing people that you've had on in the past. Did you I, get that check, by the way? I, I, it was a cashier's uh, <laughs> check. It was a cashier's. I made it out to cash. Anyway, just text me later. Let we'll me do Venmo. Yeah. Venmo. Well, I, I want to say, and that's kind of the lead, you know, and it's ironic. When you get invitations, let's start with, with the firm grasp of the obvious, to do discussions about you or your work. Where does your mind go? Is it first a no that works its way to a yes? or is it sort of a neutral idea? And you can be as candid as you sure. want to be. No, my initial response is always to crawl into a hole and, and disappear. <laughs> um, probably that, that comes from you know, childhood experiences and, and you know, various things. But um, I used to be more forthcoming when I was in my 20s. You know, I was asked to speak at various schools, Art Center, RISD, um, I've spoken at a few design conferences and after, uh, some time, I just, I guess, become a little bit more reclusive in a way. Uh, I always have this fantasy of, of going full JD Salinger one day, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's also the lore of social media is, is too strong. So, you know, I do expose a certain part of myself onto social media, which is kind of uh, a necessity these days, but I tend to be very careful not to uh, overshare. But I see other artists who are very good at crafting their online persona and, and are very good at, at um, sharing their lives and being very open. And it does work for them. Well, visual artists say someone like uh, Daniel Arsham or someone like Cause, you know, they, they have large social media followings. Yeah, yeah. I remember Cause used to hide the faces of his kids, but now they're on his social media all the time. And the same with Daniel Arsham, he's very good at showing the clothes that he's wearing, the lifestyle that he's leading, uh, flying business class and wearing <laughs> sneakers. And then right. it's part of the whole branding of, of an artist that, that uh, I personally don't think I'm very good at. Other people might think that I'm, I'm perpetuating this kind of mysterious artist persona, which um, uh, I don't know if I'm consciously doing, but I just feel like I'm more naturally uh, shy. On Instagram, you have over 600,000 with a capital T-H uh, followers. And I don't mean that to be cheeky. I think that's awesome. And it's awesome because there are people now who can know who you are. And it's not only the Vox Populi, but it's a young artist who may not have known of you. Is it a compliment when people say I've never heard of you or sort of bittersweet? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because what, what's that part of it for you? When it comes to art, uh, I think you should always be suspicious when it's too loved by the Vox Populi. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't know if that's, that comes from, you know, traditional uh, 
you know, academic training or, or the, the BS, the fine art world, uh, feeds on. Yeah. You should always be suspicious when something is, is too beautiful or too loved. And I feel that too, by the way, I, I feel like, uh, you know, I've been able to gain all these followers by never posting a selfie. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess that's to maybe the strength of the work. Although I feel like sometimes if the work is, is too popular, I immediately have a contempt for it. Mm. And uh, perhaps artists should also have like a healthy contempt for their audience because it, it it's not a democracy. You, you shouldn't create art that's that's going to be popular or liked. Art should should uh, you know make you feel and and see deeply into something and and to to make you uh, experience something new. And and it seems like the most popular art seems to be the most easily recognizable and familiar if you look at say pop art you know through like warhol and basquiat and um you know other artists who are like these amazing spokespeople for their own work um you know they they've created these personas and brands of themselves and and um you know any kind of familiar mark that they make instantly becomes the status symbol so like someone like even Yayoi Kusama, they just opened a museum of her work in Japan and tickets are already completely sold out yeah, yeah. in her affinity rooms are, you know, there's, they're impossible to get into. And in that sense, uh, you should be suspicious of something that, that, that's overly, uh, overly popular, but you know, a lot of artists embrace that they, they're, they're chasing after that, that popularity. Well, is, and, it, is uh, it, is it better to be hated or ignored? And I'm thinking of, you know, we're speaking with James Jean. I'm thinking of someone like um, Julian Schnabel, and I'm pulling Julian right. out of the air. But, you know, when Julian, when Julian's work became in the sort of mass pub public consciousness, he was equally reviled as lauded. Uh, and he's an, one example of many, you know. I think it's healthy to be, uh, to have a good amount of, of hate towards the work, to be controversial. So... In looking at my my own work, I feel like it's it's kind of uh, overly balanced. I mean, overly uh, favoring the positive end. So I I I do want to push myself, uh, especially in the future, to to make work that's a little more challenging. But artists who aren't afraid to be controversial tend to be tend, tend to be the best ones. Say YouTube culture. Now, a lot of people are almost purely cultivating hate. Yeah. and drama yeah. in order yeah. to right. to drop up um, their popularity and to, right. to build their brands. I mean, you, you can even trace that back to like, say like the, the Kardashians and you know how they were, I mean, they still are reviled, but you know, now they're, they're like royalty. I've never heard of them. So I'm going to look them up later. Um, I'll put that on my list. Uh, no, I, you know, but it's interesting. And I wasn't suggesting Julian had a strategy. Julian Schnabel had a strategy to be hated or was hated. I'm just saying he was critically, uh, targeted in a sense because yeah. because of that, but that was part of the Andy Warhol residue, that thing, you know, that modern art uh, revolution that was, it seems, in equal measure hated and loved. You have such a fascinating history, James. You left the States for a little while around 2013, 2012, went to the Philippines. What was that like? And I say that connecting out of this idea, did people know you there? If not, what was that feeling like? I did get spotted a few times but i think generally i don't put myself out there that much and, right. and i don't have this costume that i wear that a lot of a lot of artists have you know they they wear their signature sunglasses or their hat or whatever and i i don't have that so um you know being in an asian country i i i tended to to blend in and i would go like weeks at a time without without talking to anyone so it was a kind of a very uh, uh meditative time when I was there. Yeah, I guess that theme of constantly uh, wanting to disappear is, is uh, you know, I made that, I made that real in, in a sense. Would you do it again? Would you kind of do a walkabout just to get out of the clouds? And again, I'm, I'm, I'm focusing this more towards the constant noise of pushing stuff out there okay. and being out there. Would, was that recommended? I think for me, it, it was necessary. I wouldn't really recommend it. I don't know if the work I made during that time was innovative. I had shut down my website and my, my social media and everything, and I, I went completely off, off all that. And I think it was about a year before I, I sort of returned to 
to doing that. I guess I did miss it because, you know, if you're creating work, you, you, uh, you want to get feedback. Right. You want to share it. Right. Or at least most people do. Um, and, uh, and I guess I, I, I missed that. I, I, I couldn't really create the work in, in a vacuum. And now that I've returned, hopefully I won't, uh, need to disappear again, but, uh, you know, I, I think I, I, I just tend to retreat in my own mind, uh, at certain times of day and, and that's enough. Speaking with James Jean, I want to go a little further back. Music was an interest of yours as, as a young kid. Trumpet. Talk a little bit about music as a child. When did that come into your active fascination? Was that sort of a, hey, James, you need to take an instrument? I didn't come from a musical family, uh, but uh, my parents took me to, to have piano lessons when I was about seven. And then I, I did that for about uh, 10 years uh, consistently, lessons every week. And um, I picked up the trumpet when I was in elementary school. I believe it was like fourth or fifth grade. And, uh, you know, they showed us a variety of instruments. And, yeah. and they asked. I remember to, that day in school where they, they show you like the different instruments you can play. Right. Uh, so and then it's like yeah. you choose your fate. And then, you know, sometimes you go down the wrong path. Right. Choose like the oboe. Right. Hey, Woody Allen got stuck with the clarinet and it seems to have served him well over these years. Yeah. Was music a gateway drug into illustrating? How did that handoff happen for you? I was always drawing when I was a kid, so I, I, I believe that the drawing was was more innate. It was happening much earlier, yeah. and the music was was forced, especially in the beginning. But eventually, I came to devote more time to music, especially when, when I got into high school. Um, I just loved playing music. I loved the, the feeling of playing in, um, in an orchestra or in a band, in, you know, in a larger group, yeah. Uh, yeah. the feeling of disappearing into uh, into an orchestra, you know, being a part of something larger. Larger. All the while, I was drawing, but not that seriously. I was always doodling in my books, and um, I didn't really take any art classes at all. I, I think I had like uh, an equivalent of maybe like a semester or two of, of art in high school. I think it was when I got into comics when I was about 13 or 14, when I kind of discovered the outlet for drawing, because I didn't know what forms drawing could take. Right. Um, I knew nothing about illustration or fine art or painting or anything like that. Um, anything about visual culture really. And, uh, comics represented kind of like this very specific way to, um, exist, you know, to be a cartoonist towards the end of high school. I was doing way more music than art, but for some reason I decided to, to pursue, uh, to go to art school. I, I didn't apply to to any other schools other than um, the School of Visual Arts because they had a cartooning program. Deep inside, I knew that I could, couldn't become a musician. I wasn't good enough in my own mind. I, I couldn't uh, sort of get over this certain, certain threshold. Like, you know, I could see uh, much more talented musicians around me. And with drawing, I felt like I could sort of, you know, carve my own path that way and succeed. And, and, and now it's all consuming. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've noticed. James Jean, 
and I was listening to every bit of that, but I, I frankly was stuck on something you said a bit ago because it's something you said a couple of times. Oh. And maybe it's because I just listened to, on the way over here, I listened to How to Disappear Completely, the great Radiohead song. What, you've, you mentioned a couple of times this idea of disappearing in work. Is that realistic? for an artist to disappear? Or is that just some sort of personal fantasy, cool fantasy of maybe I could just give birth to this art and never be a part of the conversation? Is that really the dream or a dream you've had at, at any uh, point? Yeah, I, I think it is. I mean, it's very comforting when, uh, you know, I, I feel like I, I want to create work that can live on its own and it doesn't require, um, you know, any any kind of, support or sustenance for me that I, I want to create work that that'll, uh, you know, live beyond me. It's almost like a Frankenstein where, you know, you cobble together all this stuff and it's just this monster that, that, um, you can't control and it's, it's out there. And that, that's sort of like the, the very idea of creation. What's interesting is Dr. Frankenstein, the monster is also named Frankenstein. So, you know, <laughs> it, as long as it lived, his name lived on. It's funny, yeah, yeah. you know, I was thinking of two things when I read, the, I think it's a fascinating quote of yours, and I'm paraphrasing it badly about your body, body being a vehicle for your emotions within the context of being an artist of a physical disposition, you know, the, the physical act of creating, which you do quite majestically and I was thinking of two things one was uh, one of it's my favorite Stanley, one of my favorite Stanley Kubrick quotes which is he was asked to define what a director is he said a director is a kind of idea and taste machine the other thing I was thinking of and it wasn't a quote but it was a person it was Chuck Close what if you couldn't physically create as you do now would that end your journey as an artist yeah I, I you know I used to see Chuck Close uh in, in New York, like say at the Met. For those not listening who aren't initiated, don't know, Chuck is paralyzed, uh, but he continues to create his studio art. Right. Yeah. So he, he began creating these large, um, ultra uh, photorealistic works. But then when he had his, um, what was it, a stroke? Yeah. Uh, many people would argue that his work became more interesting. So I think for many artists, uh, constraints are important you know if, if you're too free uh you can become you know literally paralyzed you, it's hard to know what to what to make what to do but once you're presented with a set of um, problems or limitations then you're actually free then you can go down a path and, and solve the problems and and, and and create work and um and it's funny that, that you bring this up because on Sunday, my thumb index finger uh, started getting numb. And I was, you know, Googling what that meant. And I guess I might be developing carpal tunnel right now. So, you know, I've got this got this uh, weird glove apparatus on, right. on my on my arm right now. It's the first time this has happened. And it's happening at the most uh, busy time uh, of the year for me right now. Aside from deadlines. Did, did that, did that, is that freaking you out? Um, it's not freaking me out yet because I can still work and I feel like it's getting a little bit better. But the, yeah, the numbness, is, it's very strange. It's definitely something new and different because I've never had any problems like this before. I usually don't have like aches and pains or, you know, back pain. I tend to be um, pretty healthy in, in that regard. But yeah, you know, I'm almost uh, 40 now. So it's, uh, you know. Things are catching up to me, I guess. I tell my filmmaking students this all the time, and it's something Ingmar Bergman, he didn't complain about it. He just reported it. He, he People would ask him, when are you going to make another movie? And I'm paraphrasing Bergman, but it's like, hey, it, it's hard. It's physically hard, you know, for a filmmaker. And, you know, you know, you know, filmmakers and, you know, in your world, it's you're, you're physically working. You're working in human hours at in, in human lengths. Right. So it is a physical thing. When an athlete turns 40, we think oh, they're almost done. But when an artist turns 40, we, we don't even think about that. And you're not done. I'm just saying uh, it's it's a very human um, report. Uh as we get into the, the middle chapter of the talk, I want to we'll get into the SVA of it all, School of Visual Arts. My mind went to Gerard Way. And I, <laughs> the first question is, I know you, you've worked, uh, you, you've done amazing covers for Umbrella Academy. Uh, you've, you've done uh, My Chemical Romance Black Parade cover, amazing. And I want to talk to you about covers. But were you at SVA when Gerard was there? Maybe. 
It might. Uh, do, do you know exactly when? He's three years older than you. So that's oh. so I don't know like I don't know graduation dates or anything but I yeah. I guess if you don't know the answer is probably no when did you first meet Gerard yeah, he was on the show friends. recently and I'm just a huge fan of Gerard and on so many levels have you and Gerard ever talked about art training Yeah a little bit yeah, I remember when we we met to to talk about doing the album cover for uh, the Black Parade Yeah he was in the cartooning department at his face that might why we never ran into each other. So when I when I went to SVA, I went there because they had a cartooning department, which was a very rare thing back then. Um, I guess now you can you know get your MFA in cartooning thanks to you know like Chris Ware and Daniel Klaus and That's awesome. people like that. But That's um, awesome. I transferred into the illustrations department because uh, uh, I discovered I had a, like a, a love for painting and making just single. Uh, single images rather than than a, a comic, which I, I discovered uh, I had no talent for. It was just horribly <laughs> painful for me. Um, there were very distinct departments. Yeah, I think since they they they've uh, realized that that was not the right approach. I think they've sort sort of merged the two, maybe. Well, um, most grad academies like that little. You're the studio artist, and you stay there, and you're the film students, and you stay there, and it made no sense to me, and I think some of those walls are breaking down. And but the both yeah. of you, the both of you and Gerard are polymathic in that way. So I, I just thought it was cool how many times you, you all have te- teamed up, and I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, album cover art because I wanted to then get into sure. movie posters, which is seems apropos, right. apropos of now. But I want to talk a little bit about yeah. movie uh, album cover art. You've done some amazing stuff. Uh, prisoner of consciousness, Talib Kweli, who's been on our show, l- amazing. The other, and maybe a more bittersweet uh, one that I was thinking of, is Lincoln Park, the Hunting Party. Um, um, talk a little bit about, and I, I want to ask you about Chester Bennington, but who recently tragically passed. But talk about yeah. when you collaborate with an artist on an album cover. Demy- demystify some of this, because I think sometimes the lay person can think there are thousands of conversations between you and the artist and it's a active, it can be an active collaboration or it can be a passive one. When does an album cover collaboration work really well for you? It works the best when the artist has a personal relationship with the person who's, who's making the, the visual art for the album. So mm-hmm. say for like the black parade, that was, that was great because Gerard had, um, a very specific vision, but not necessarily either the time or, or the interest to, to kind of pull it off in a grand way. He, he had created almost like a, a mini Bible of all the characters and the narrative for for the um, entire album and, and the world that, that he was creating. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. I worked off of that, and um, that was great. Uh, at the same time, I was also doing album covers for uh, Atlantic Records, Electra Records, right. um, and even some I can't even can't even remember. But you know, I worked that was working for an art director, and they would have very specific uh, ideas or compositions, and you know, some some would even sketch out their their ideas for me, and and uh, you know, they that felt very cold and, and personal, and I don't think uh, that work really survived mm. or had. And it's sort of life. Whereas if you look at the Black Parade, it's like uh, it's, it's it's legion. Spectacle. I think it's we'll we'll talk in the in the Black Parade of it all. Um, did you want to listen to demos? Where do you where does your mind want to go? Do you want to see lyrics? Do you want to listen to demos? Do you want to hear uh, o- Do you want to hear older albums? Do you want to hear the album before? Where does your mind go? Where, where do you need to go to launch that concept for you? When I did combo covers. I I wanted to read the script. Even if you know nothing was drawn yet, I, I I always try to do as much as much research as I can, and um, just assemble all these uh, clues to to visuals and you know, all this information that can sort of spark something 
um, in my imagination. Working in the comics world, sometimes the editors were surprised that I was interested in reading the script. Um, but uh, <laughs> when I was doing like superhero covers, they the editors were like, "Why do you need to read the script? Just do a, a pinup of, of Batgirl." You know. You know, doing Batgirl or Green Arrow, I was wondering, doing those covers, did you want to look at older Green Arrow? Did you want to see something like Jim Lee did, or you know, how much of the tabula rasa? On a graphic side, <laughs> on a graphic side, you know, right. do you literally want that white canvas, or do you want to say, "Hey, what's come before it? How can I break the rules?" Because Green Arrow looks like something, so you obviously, you know, something is stored. Where does a reference for a Green Arrow comic book cover come for you? Well, I did look at a lot of stuff that came before, and that was a challenging gig because I didn't really feel connected to that character. Yeah. I brought in some references from like uh, uh, Japanese woodblock prints, Kurosawa, playing with the the acrobatics of the characters and 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 um, the the beauty of a bow and an arrow, um, rather than uh, the costume of the character. It, I just I kind of couldn't connect with like the the blonde goatee and 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 I'm doing everything I can to sort of avoid like the, the classic interpretation of, of the character yeah so yeah With, without engendering tons of hate mail from the the the, the most devout fans right. of the green Arrow. well that's a whole conversation for a different day when we have i have with comic book creators all the time and in our last chapter together uh, we've been graciously here on murmur radio with james jean i want to talk a little bit about something that you may be familiar with recently um movie poster art and again i think this is I don't know what science, what what estate we're up to, the fifth or sixth or seventh estate, but this is like the 18th estate for art. We forget that movie posters are art. I, I don't. I just, you know, you've done some incredible moving uh, posters for Darren Aronofsky's film Mother. I want to talk a little bit about that, but talk a little bit about your your thoughts on movie poster art in general. Is that something you register as art? What have been some of the references for great movie poster art in your life? Have, are you a fan of movie posters, or have you been agnostic to movie posters up until recently? No, I'm definitely a fan of movie posters um, from you know like Polish movie posters. Oh, that to... that website, that Polish movie web. Do you know? Is, uh, there's a website called polishmovieposters.com. It's extraordinary. I could spend weeks yeah. just looking through it. Sorry, go on. Apologize. No, the graphic language is just so. Uh, it's just next level. They take the narrative and and turn it into something. Oh, I love those. Uh, I love something those. new. Uh, and even, you know, I look at uh, the movie posters in, in Africa. They take like Rambo and then they, they paint it in, in this kind of weirdly grotesque way. Oh, how interesting. Um, African cultures tend to love action films. Right. That's wild. I got to look into that. And painted uh, movie posters from Ghana. Oh, how cool. It feels like, um, like outsider art. Yeah. Was that in the dialogue with with Darren Aronofsky? D did he ask you where do you want to start with this? And I guess let's go back to the 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 uh, the Ground Zero. Did you know? Had, sure. Were you friends with Darren? Did you guys like keep bumping into each other? How did you and Darren Aronofsky come together? It was for the Fountain when the movie was coming out. He was trying to put together an art show, approaching different artists and, and asking them to um, create work based on his script. For the movie, oh, cool. Kent Williams, who had done the graphic novel for The Fountain, referred me to Darren. Then I did a with his movie Noah. He did a similar thing where he curated an art show, and I did a painting for that. But this was the the first time where, you know, he asked me to to make something specifically uh, for the movie that was used as like the key image when when it was announced. I would say congratulations to you, but I would say the same to him. I mean, in the sense of it's an incredible. <laughs> meeting of the minds and the, the let's you know there i've seen a couple of iterations of the poster but the one poster i want to reference for the listeners is the one of jennifer lawrence's character i just don't know the characters where she's literally taking her heart out of her chest and what's interesting about that a for aronofsky fans i was thinking of pie i don't know if that great sequence yeah. on the subway with the heart but talk about that image of jennifer lawrence is again where do you start is it can i see some dailies can I see a photo of Jennifer? Can I talk to Jennifer? Can I talk to you? Can I read a script? Where do you start on the road to get that image of Jennifer Lawrence 
taking her heart from her chest. That was a specific idea from Darren. He he referenced this um, the sculptor from the UK. I believe her name is uh, Jennifer Harris. I could be wrong, but he he did credit her in in a in a, a tweet. I think when when he first announced the poster, but mm-hmm. a, a similar image of of a woman taking out her heart. I did read the script, but actually the, the our initial discussions about the posters were quite different. He had like this vague idea of what he wanted. And then as we went back and forth and had different ideas, uh, we sort of kind of crystallized into, into that image of, of Jennifer taking out her heart. And, um, you know, then I brought in these other elements, you know, sort of, uh, referencing like, uh, Frida Kahlo and, and, yeah, uh, yeah. uh Martin Johnson Heed in the background, um, so that mm. he's he's like a naturalist painter that that I love, and um, and then I suggested putting in all these Easter eggs from the movie in the background. We actually went back and forth about that because I think Darren didn't want to reveal too much about the movie in the poster, and so initially he kind of uh, demurred against putting the Easter eggs in, but then changed his mind and and I, I had to actually go back in and, and repaint <laughs> some parts of the painting to, to put these things in and um, uh, I didn't get to see the movie he wanted to screen the movie for me in New York but I couldn't get over there so um, I, I did read the script and he's it's one of those things where like you know it's like watermark and you only have like uh, yeah a few hours to read it and then it explodes your laptop explodes <laughs> that's right yeah well the, and also but about Easter eggs Easter eggs can change from script to screen. I mean, was that ever a conversation in the sense of what Easter eggs are still Easter eggs? I mean, obviously the image could be cool anyway, but did you got, yeah. I mean, is there, is there a weird half-life on Easter eggs in that? Was that ever in the, uh, no, in the paranoia? I, I think um, when, when we were making the poster, the movie is pretty, it was almost done. Almost done. Yeah. So everything was, you know, I, I worked from some stills that they, they, they sent me to uh, sort of extrapolated the imagery from there. Actually, the stills were not the most high res and everything was like super dark. So the, the images were kind of noisy, but mm. um, I, I tried my best. I don't know it's kind of, yeah, you know, it's not one of those movies that's shot in like 8K. And, <laughs> yeah, thank you know, goodness. It's got like very organic feel to it, which is great for, for a film. Right. But, but in terms of a, 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 a giving birth to a, another work of art it's it's a it's a harder thing to trace did jennifer ever see it did jennifer lawrence did you ever get feedback or even incidentally Um, anecdotal uh anecdotal feedback i did get some candid shots of her uh from darren um when we were trying to nail down the likeness i I, primarily i I worked from um uh, one of the stills from the film but i did have to it was difficult trying to, to 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 render the body because that's completely uh invented you know that mm. that's uh, uh i thought it was interesting that that later on uh or recently she was painted by john curran oh interesting for for vogue's uh i, I don't what is it vogue's L- let me pull my issue of vogue out of my book bag no I'm, i don't have one yeah. I'm, i don't know i'm sorry man <laughs> sorry <laughs> Yeah, he was able to have her come into the studio and, and also work from from his own photographs. Uh, so for the mother poster, I think you know, there was a little bit more distance there. I'll, I'll take movie po- I'll take movie poster distance over magazine photographic realism, but that's a different thought for a different day. A couple more thoughts here with James Jean. Um, sure. you know, it's funny because in 2010, around there, you were commissioned to do some portraits of performers and actors. Uh, do actors inspire you? I mean, there's the physical act of performance and body architecture, and you, you've, you're doing this really cool thing with the Australian ballet and tilt brush art. So I was thinking of VR. the physics, yeah, and VR. I was thinking of the physics of the not the physics of the body as such, because obviously bodies have been in your work, but actor bodies. Does performance uh, do something? Does it elevate? Because, you know, when you think of a script, a flat object like a screenplay, theoretically actors elevate that flat object. Can an actor yep. elevate a work of art as such? Can a Jennifer Lawrence or any actor elevate a poster in the way that maybe a non-actor isn't able to do? Yeah, I, I think um, they give you a leg up on on the work because you know, actors or models they have uh, extra charisma. You know, not not all of us are born with with that uh, extra charisma. 
So, uh, you know, when, when you're in the presence of that, it, it's, it's very uh, helpful. Although I'm, I'm thinking of painters like, um, like Alice Neal or even like a Lucian Freud, where they're able to, to pick out all the eccentricities or, or the unique qualities of, of your average person and kind of, um, um, you know, expound upon that. Um, you know, that was something I was interested in doing. Um, when I went to art school, you know, I, I, I very, was very interested in working from the figure, working from life, drawing from life. And that was a big part of my work for a while. And now it, it's, I'm working purely from imagination. But, um, but when I'm asked to, uh, you know, paint portraits or, or to, to work with, um, the figure, it's great to be able to have access to say like a dancer from the Australian ballet or, or to, you know, a, a famous actor or, or model. They, they're just, uh, really fun to, to, uh, to work with. I feel like you beat yourself up a little bit. I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I feel like when you're, you're deceptively critical of yourself, um, you know, when you're referencing other artists, you're almost saying, well, this is what they can do, but I cannot do. Do you think you're hard on yourself? Uh, yeah, I think I'm very tough on myself. I was just having this conversation the other day about how I've been very fortunate in my career. You know, people have been talking about, oh, well, you know, sometimes I joke about the law of attraction, you know, the the secret and, and visualizing things. And uh, I, I always... I think that I'm more of like the the Larry David side of things, where I'm, <laughs> I'm like I can I can get uh, super negative and and dark, um, almost too much so. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I I feel like uh, it's just having a trying to have an honest, objective appraisal of oneself because I have no illusions. Or try to have no illusions, or, or to dispel illusions about myself. And then, uh, you know, once you've stripped away any kind of falseness, you can sort of uh, work from a place of of honesty and and um, you know n- not have false hopes, dreams, expectations. I don't know. That's uh, but at the same time, I'm also trying to tap into how, how would you call it, like a place of magic in a sense, because mm-hmm. you know, art for me is kind of very alchemical I, I sort of don't know how it happens uh you know I'm, I'm just putting lines and paint together on on the surface and uh why am I so lucky in that I can you know create these images and put together you know graphic symbols in a way that that so many people uh appreciate last question and it's slightly melancholic but it really is a question for you in, in an indirect way, we were talking about, uh, I mentioned Chester Bennington passing away, and you had done Lincoln sure. Park's uh, The Hunting Party. Sure. When an artist that you've collaborated with, collaborated in any sense we want to draw it, passes away, sure. that that artwork changes. You know, that his oeuvre changes, and the cover you designed changed. A, do you agree with that? And B, when he passed away, when Chester Bennington passed away, where did your mind go? I'm still kind of in shock about the whole thing. Uh, my condolences. I didn't mean to sound cold. Oh, sure. No, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm very good friends with uh, Joe Hahn, who's the DJ in the band. Um, I also know Mike Shinoda. I think uh, Chester, I knew the least, but uh, I've been, I guess, close to the band for a while. You know, I've been on tour with them, traveled with them, you know, been on private jets with them, worked out in the gym with them. So, uh, yeah, to me, it was just a very shocking thing. And it's kind of, I wouldn't say awkward, but it's, it's like, uh, at this point that we're talking, it's, it's, you know, everything's kind of in flux. I mean, yeah. uh, they, they actually just released a new logo for the band where they, the, I think the original logo was like a hexagon. So the six sides for the six members of the band, and then they they took out one of the the lines on the hexagon. Amazing, uh, amazing. So I I mean I don't know what's going to happen with the band going forward. Um, I think right now they're they're working on a, a tribute concert at the Hollywood Bowl, and they asked me to to do a piece of art for that. Extraordinary. Uh, 
But, uh, but yeah, it's just completely shocking because he was just too young. Um, but you know, he was also dealing with a lot of, you know, dark issues, but, um, yeah, the art aspect, I mean, until you brought it up now, I didn't even think about it. And, um, you know, maybe that's something that, that say the fans, um, will read into now. Would you estimate the work of art has changed? the cover art has changed or is it an eternal object when you create something is are its properties mutable as history changes oh it's definitely mutable i mean hopefully like i'm just, i think of you know hopefully it's not a non sequitur but like say bill cosby i mean you know he created an uh, amazing body of work but now it's all changed yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you can't even it's just i mean i, I guess with with chester i hopefully you know the fit the the band and 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 uh, friends of the band. You know they're they're making these beautiful tributes to him that hopefully will uh, encourage other people to not lose hope. You know to not succumb to to depression. And, um, in that sense, hopefully there's some some light to be gained from from you know this incredibly dark uh, situation. That's why I think. I have that feeling of trying to divorce myself from the art. You know, I, I want the art to kind of you know, live and breathe on, on its own and not be corrupted or tainted by anything that I do or by how fallible I am as a person. Because with the art, I'm trying to achieve something transcendent, something superhuman. When, you know, I look at myself objectively, uh, you know, I'm going to decay and, and, and uh, eventually uh, um, disappear. But the, the art is, um, you know, something hopefully that, that, that will uh, achieve um, acclaim and, and acceptance way beyond what I can do as, as a, a, mere, a mere mortal. Conscious naivete, it's one of the uh, ingredients of being an artist. Um, what you said just now is intensely naive and equally and more so inspirational as you are. Uh, James, I want to thank you, man. I just want you to find some new goals because if your goal was to have your work live on, uh, we'll take it from here. So it's up to you now. Uh, keep doing what you do, man. And if we can ever be of help here, uh, let us know. But we're fans and we'll keep watching. Thank you for being with us here today, man. Appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Take care, James. Okay. Tom York once talked about the origin of that song, How to Disappear Completely. It's on uh, Kid A, uh, their 2000 album, 
of Radiohead, and he said he it was from a dream he had. He had w- woken up uh, the night before. It was the night before they were going to play the huge, the biggest crowd they had ever played, which is about thirty thousand at the time in Dublin. And he woke up. He had been dreaming that he was uh, being chased. Uh, he was naked, and he was being chased by a tidal wave and also floating uh, around the Liffey. Liffey is the, the river that runs through the middle of Dublin. And you can hear that in the lyrics. Uh, the title, apparently, Michael Stipe had once told uh, they were. Tom York has had stage fright uh, throughout his career, it seems, and, and Michael Stipe gave him uh, words of advice. He said, um, "Just keep thinking. I'm not here. This isn't happening." So that was Michael's advice to Tom about stage fright. Uh, is that realistic on stage? Maybe. Is it realistic in life? Maybe not. We want to thank James Jean for being with us here today on Murmur. Murmurradio.com. Every week we're here, whupfm.org, live at 2 p.m. Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes. Subscribe to us, tell friends, leave us iTunes reviews. Do your part, I'll do mine. This is just such fun, and I want to keep bringing it to you every week. Live murmurs coming up. Be careful. See you soon.